today's weekly recap episode of the 2022 Victorian state election episode of a social democratic is proudly presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with nonprofit and community-based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses, and socially democratic, socially democratic, social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff and leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organize communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn have the experience you need on your side when something goes wrong. They know the law inside and out and will explain every detail without legal jargon so you feel comfortable and fully understand your situation. They know how the system works and have the expertise and resources to continue to stand up for clients on matters where others may just give up. So to find out more about Morris Blackburn, you need to go to their website, which is morrisblackburn.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that comes out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And obviously, as you know, the Victorian state election is on right now and every week I sit down with David Feeney, former party secretary here in Victoria, and Emma Dawson, the executive director of a progressive think tank here in Victoria called Per Capita. And we wrap up the week that was. And this is the final week because we're taping this one on a Thursday and election day is on Saturday. So check out this week's episode as we take you all the way to the finish line. And don't forget as well on Saturday night, Socially Democratic is teaming up with our comrades uh, at the Week on Wednesday podcast with Van Batham and Ben Davidson. And we are doing our live election telecast again we did it in two we did it in uh the may federal election and we're doing it again on saturday night to cover the victorian state election so it's like an election night party with friends really so if you get sick of watching you know channel nine or seven or whoever the hell's covering the victorian state election and you wanted to get really really biased commentary but also uh hearing from people uh party activists campaigners um uh, politicians uh, down here in Victoria, uh, being interviewed by Van and uh, Ben, then you should watch the live election telecast. And if you want to get up-to-date results, um, I've built a team of campaigners that are on the ground that are getting booth-by-booth results from our people across our battleground seats, and we're going to present them to you as the night goes on. It won't be sexy graphics like they have on uh, the ABC with uh, Anthony Green, uh, but it will be uh, it will be up-to-date by the minute up-to-date results uh, through the night. So it kicks off at 7 o'clock and you can listen, so you can watch it actually as opposed to it's a pod, not a podcast, it's actually a TV thing. We've hired a studio in the city. It's all very professional um, and it'll be on the Dunn Street YouTube channel. So if you go into onto YouTube and type in Dunn Street, uh, you'll find a live feed of the telecast there. It'll also be on Van's Twitter account, Van Badham's Twitter account, I guess her handle is Van Batam, I would imagine. Uh, And it'll also be on the Dunn Street Facebook page as well. And I think it'll probably be on the week on Wednesdays 
channels as well. So basically just look for all the Dunn Street channels or look for all the week on Wednesday channels or look for Van's Twitter and you'll be able to find a live feed and tell your friends as well. We got 55,000 people actually watched the telecast in the May election, which is remarkable. I thought if we got 5,000, I'd be wrapped, but we got 55,000. So it's going to be huge. And this is, we're doing this now because the, all the mainstream media is just so shit and biased. And we figured, well, what, you, would, wouldn't you just rather listen to really shit Labor Party biased kind of commentary as opposed to Tory biased? So please do. Uh, don't forget to, um, if you like the podcast, to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. When you don't listen to the show, uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And for all updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a Thursday evening on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And we are into the final hours of this Victorian election campaign. And uh, welcome to the final week recap episode of the 2022 Victorian state election. And to help me recap it, once again, I'm joined by the Executive Director of Per Capita, an independent progressive think tank, Emma Dawson. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Why, thank you very much. And former Senator, former federal member for Batman, former Victorian State Secretary and Campaign Director David Feeney. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Pleasure to be with you. So we are in the final stages of what has been, I would think, I would call an unorthodox campaign. Bizarre. Yeah, bizarre is probably another word, right? Um, Mm. It's two days. We're recording this now. It's two days until voting ends. Uh, We're seeing, I think, 1.5 or maybe high accidents see today's returns um, of Victorians' early vote. Uh, and since we last spoke uh, a week ago, a lot has actually happened. Um, when we did speak or recorded our last episode, uh, the VEC had written a letter to – sorry, the VEC had referred the uh, inquiry into Matthew Guy and his former chief of staff off to IBAC um, – uh, but then so much happened after that. So we'll talk a bit about that. Um, obviously, over the weekend, then there was a lot more information about sort of liberal preferences to uh, characters and candidates that had white supremacist and sort of racist backgrounds. Uh, we saw a liberal candidate uh, from Narin Warren North be exposed for making a, a number of sort of sexist, racist and homophobic remarks. Uh, we had a cooker rally on Saturday afternoon in which... The elected member of parliament called on uh, members of the rally to effectively assassinate the premier. Um, and then on Monday, the, the premier had to apologise for labelling people neo-Nazis. So it's been weird. And then we had a debate on Tuesday night and a lot has happened since then because a lot of polls have come out. So let's uh, let's dive into what's happened since we last spoke. And David, I want to sort of begin with you. Uh, the VEC, obviously, they referred this matter to the invest to this investigation into the Liberals' um, potentially breaching campaign donation laws to IBAC. Uh, but then the VC, their comms person perhaps, went on 3AW to do an interview, which then the Liberals wrote to the VC telling them to butt out and how it was outrageous and they wanted a retraction and an apology and, um, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, I thought it was interesting, David, that they doubled down the Liberals and kind of kicked this story along for an extra day, whereas you probably wouldn't want that happening given that they're one of their central planks of their campaign against Labor is integrity. Yeah, I think both misstepped. I I, I think the VEC misstepped 
um, as an independent agency responsible for the conduct of elections and redistributions, I think it was a bad look for them to be uh, in the public debate against a party in the middle of an election. I just think that was uh, poor conduct, as much as I might delight in the fact that it was discomforting the Liberals. It's just not the way these things should be done. Um, so I, I was sort of fundamentally, and of course, if it had happened to us, um, you know, we were, as it has on occasions in the past in different contexts, uh, we've been justifiably outraged. Uh, but then I think the Liberals, uh, as you say, compounded this problem by insisting that the state talk about it for another 24 hours and by engaging. Um, because from the Liberal Party's perspective, um, they can uh, escalate the issue and thereby keep it running for 24 hours, but they're not going to resolve it. Um, and they're not going to, there is no victory. You know, if you sat there and said, what does victory look like when you're in the middle of an election campaign and you're arguing with the VC about a corruption allegation? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, well, victory looks like the story disappearing. It doesn't look like you're batting on with it for another 24 hours. So uh, I think it was an error uh, for both the agency and for the Liberal strategists and uh, for the Labor Party, I guess it was a um, delightful distraction. Emma, over the weekend, there was a rally uh, in the mm -hmm. front of um, Flinders Street Station um, in which uh, a number of people attended from various backwaters of Victorian politics. Catherine <laughs> Cummings, who's the um, uphouse member for Western, one of the uphouse members for Western Metro, uh, was at the rally and she spoke to the rally and I'll quote what she said. She said, I joined the angry Victorians party for one reason, to make Daniel Andrews turn into red, red mist. Uh, I, uh, in the army, we would call it pink mist, but I want mm. him into red mist. Give anyone here in the army a job to blow someone up and they will. Emma, when you first heard this, what was, what went through your, what were your thoughts on this? How did we get here? I read it before I heard it and I, I thought something had been lost in translation. And then I looked up the footage online and no, it really was as bad as it seemed. Um, this kind of, the, the rhetoric was undeniably un violent and an incitement to violent violence. I mean, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. It's a party called the Angry Victorians Party, right? They're not, they're not coming to politics from a position of deep conviction or, uh, or rationality. But this is the kind of rhetoric that is incredibly dangerous and really has not been something that has been part of Australian politics before now. Um, I thought it was reprehensible. Um, I thought the fact that it was reported in any way, and, and you know, most, most media outlets reported it responsibly with condemnation, but the fact that it was reported in as any way a legitimate contribution to this election was deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, and it's simply not the kind of politics that we expect here in Australia. I mean, I'm, I'm, you can hear by my voice, I was really outraged by that. I just thought it was obscene. Um, if it weren't, I mean, she's not under parliamentary privilege, right? I don't know why she's not being investigated for incitement to, to violence. It's, it, it's really, really egregious stuff. Um, and it's been fostered and encouraged by sections of the media. It's been fostered and encouraged by 
parts of the opposition um, and not nearly uh, well enough condemned um, by, I think, all responsible players in this election. And it, it is the culmination of a few years of really extreme uh, anti-Dan, very personalised, very violent rhetoric that I think has no place whatsoever in our political conversation. One thing that uh, I thought about, I was actually up in Sydney when the um, when this all happened uh, mm. and I just felt like I had a bit of geographical distance to this and I just it was on a train going somewhere and I was just starting to think about it and I was like, the the liberal one of the liberal party's main pitches to the electorate is that you know we saw this in the debate and we'll talk about this in a moment that you know Daniel Andrews he's just our state's never been so divi- yeah. divided and it's and it's like it's Daniel Andrews's fault but you hear these remarks from people like Catherine Cummings an elected a democratically elected person to our state's parliament use their pulpit mm. to, to say these things and. I just think to myself, how can you point the finger at Daniel Andrews for the fact that our state's divided when people are saying this sort of stuff? I mean, no one should be calling the assassination of any public leader, regardless of no. their political persuasion. No, it's pure. It's pure Trumpism. It's it's Lauren Brobart, Marjorie Taylor Greene land, right? You know, it's those nut job, gun carrying, extreme Tea Party, Trumpist, uh, Republican right rhetoric being imported here, and the fact that then there's any any. Thing in the public conversation or the reaction to that that says, well, see how divisive the Premier is, is just beyond the pale to me, you know, like he's somehow responsible for having invoked this level of rhetorical violence. Um, It's a pure import of the kinds of politics that have divided and brought American democracy to the brink. They know what they're doing. Um, The fact that the media in any way not even if they don't encourage it, the fact that they tolerate it and report it uh, through their kind of, you know, both sidesism, horse race journalism is, I think, not only an appalling breach of media ethics and standards, but really, really dangerous behaviour. It's just useful to point out that Catherine Cumming uh, was a councillor in the city of Footstray in the 90s, where she... Uh, began her career essentially railing against um, uh, Australians of Vietnamese heritage who were then um, uh, very prominent in Footscray. Um, And she's then sort of worked in local government as essentially a populist appealing to various racist sentiments. She sort of migrated away from the Vietnamese issue into Islamic issues. As they all do, right. Then the delightful Darren Hinch, um, aided and abetted by the preference whisperer Drury, constructed a plan that got her into the Legislative Council and she had the good manners to rat on that party within minutes of the election so that she was sworn in as an independent. So she's a long-standing, um, you know, grifter and uh, political carpetbagger who has appealed to the worst angels in our community and she's been given, you know, a platform uh, by her sort of by the Darren Hinch party sponsoring her into parliament mm. um, and now and and sort of this moment and the times suit her um, sort of being the sort of lightning rod for cookers and madness that she's become so it's really an unfortunate thing that these sort of long-standing characters have in this moment found their moment the um, following that, then on Sunday and maybe on, into Monday, there was uh, reports 
about obviously the the Liberal candidate standing in the seat of Narriwarra North, who'd said a whole bunch of remarks about Aboriginal Australians and women and um, and members of the LGBT community, uh, as well as the candidate, the Liberal candidate standing in the seat of Mulgrave, attended a rally that was run by a bunch of um, you know um, freaks and whatnot. And stood next to a bunch of people who were calling for the election to be postponed. Um, you know, normally in these campaigns, early in the race, you kind of see because the Liberal Party always struggle to find good quality candidates, and it kind of undoes them a bit, both at a state and a federal level. You, their vetting isn't great, or they're so desperate just to put people on a ticket that they end up winding up with people that you really shouldn't be standing for public office. In fact, it's a bit of a curse for the Greens as well. Um, and we didn't see it much in this campaign uh, earlier on. But over the weekend, we saw a couple of examples of this starting to unravel. But a different, and normally this would sink, or this would really put a leader on the back foot, having to defend people within his caucus. And then on Sunday night, actually, then we had the sixty minutes thing into the, that uh, uh, Pentecostal uh, fundamentalist group up in Morwell, um, trying to branch stack their way into the Liberal Party to take over and fundamentally alter the policy de- positions of the Liberal Party on a whole matter of affairs, in particular around women's health. Um, and equality and, and a whole bunch of other things. And yet I thought well, I thought Monday, Tuesday, the press was going to just absolutely tear into Matthew Guy and I thought, oh, this is great. This is going to set it up for the final week and Matthew Guy is going to be on the back foot for two or three days defending himself against, you know, infiltration from neo-Nazis and Pentecostal Christians and, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole shebang. And it just kind of just – oh, Monday morning, Daniel Andrews had to apologise for using the term Nazi – uh, I just, David, I just was absolutely baffled and I want to get a read from you about what the hell happened there. Well, I guess it's sort of a little bit of what I uh, talked about last week, which is that um, there's a large, the, the, the Liberal Party have made a strategic decision to hoover up preferences from wherever they can find them and just shamelessly stare down this issue. And that, and, and that sort of shameless conduct is aided and abetted by the fact that, you know, News Corp will make sure that this story um, disappears where they can. So, I mean, if we're reading the Age newspaper um, or having a look at other media sources, this has been a a consistent drumbeat this week. Um, These, uh, you know, the changing complexion of the Liberal Party itself, as well as these unsavoury alliances, it has got a bit of coverage, but it's it's the unfortunate phenomena of there being two different um, media bubbles and depending which one you live in, you have a completely different experience of this election. Um, and as you've heard me rant on far too many occasions, there are just too many people who are in a media bubble where this kind of thing isn't going to penetrate. Now, you're quite right. When once upon a time there was a, 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 a village square and everybody was kind of looking at the same political contest, this would have completely thrown a campaign off the rails and the leader would have been obliged to spend valuable moments in the final week explaining all of these various um, skirmishes and catastrophes. But now in this media universe, um, a leader can just say, you know, fake news, ignore it, I, I'm going to go on television programs where I know the journalist isn't going to ask me about it, do press conferences where I can just stare it down um, and uh, I'll just see this issue off and that's what's happened. Um, my final thought on that before we move to the debate, um, I, 
one of the things I thought about that came out of the 2018 campaign when Matthew Guy ran heavily on the African gangs as an issue uh, and dog whistled to a certain section of the community mm. that was overwhelmingly rejected by the electorate. Since Donald Trump was successful in 2016, he's lost every other ballot that he's been actively involved in. And we've seen Republicans, and we talk, I talked about this with Janae Wartell when she was on the program and we did the sort of the post-wrap de, uh, debrief of the midterms, um, <laughs> in which Republicans that were just normal, that, didn't, that weren't election deniers, but were just traditional Republicans, evil, evil as they are, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, were successful. Brian Kemp in Georgia was a good example of that against uh, Stacey Abrams. And I've started to come to the opinion that voters are just going to now vote for normal. And that's the bar that you, you need to jump. If you're normal, you'll get elected. Um, this won't play out right across the state, but I just want to get your thoughts, Emma, on that. I mean, uh, uh, will this touch up the Liberals in some races? Like I'm thinking Caulfield or Box Hill, um, you know, some of those eastern suburban leafy green seats where people are reasonably engaged in what's going on in their communities, are reading some of the more, I won't say progressive papers, but, you know, papers that are at least reporting on it. Uh, will we see in this election that people just will vote for normal? Yeah, look, I think I think there's an element of that, um, Stephen, for sure. I think you know the media has been so um, oh this this is an ugly campaign. Nobody's interested in anything but mudslinging. Um, is there enough of an, a mood for change? Is there enough of a you know no attitude in the community that that things are going badly wrong? Will they vote for normal? I think. One of the laments of the media that the, the electorate's not engaged enough is that fear that they will just vote for normal, right? They won't they won't listen to these kind of um, appeals to to be outraged on one side or the other, um, and feel that for all the scandals and all the media coverage and all the you know debate about hating Dan, standing with Dan, being anti Dan, uh, that most people's lives are ticking along in Victoria as well as they can be. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it's going to have the kind of impact that that the political and media class thinks it will. There's two things, Stephen, which I know you know well. Compulsory voting mm. changes this dynamic between us and the Yanks pretty profoundly. Yep. Um, and... The second thing is that News Limited is a two-edged sword for the Liberal Party. It's obviously a great force multiplier, but it, when it's, but it's doing a lot of their thinking for them. And as we've seen with the Republicans and Fox News, you know, you, at, at some point you lose touch about which one's running the other one and uh, they lead you into madness and they've led the Republicans into madness. Um, and in a voluntary voting system, the effects of that are pretty dramatic. Mm. It, it's not as dramatic in our environment, but as we watch the Liberal Party become more and more a creature of the News Corp Brains Trust, they are going to become more populist. Um, they're going to become uh, more and more uh, enthusiastic about you know alliance building with these lunatics. We should worry about what's going on in the Liberal Party's own branches as... Mm normal conservatives migrate out of them um, and, you know, organised religious groups and others move into them. Um, so, you know, we, while we, of course, bemoan the fact that News Corp is such a 
powerful force multiplier for the Liberal Party, it also ends up being a cancer that kills them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, right? We're not America. Um, and it's not just because of compulsory voting, although that does go a long way to explain how much more engaged with the nuance and the detail of of politics and economics most Australians are compared to, say, Americans, but that we just, we're very, very sceptical of that kind of extremities, right? And and that's why, you know, when someone does stand up and talk about red mist, people go, what? You know, seriously, what? Whereas in America it's just, oh, it's another cooker out for the day. Um, so, yeah, I think I think David's right to some regard that, in, to some extent, in that um, while News Limited goes in really hard and they they play the bat really hard for the libs, they also really alienate a bigger proportion of the population here than than the extremist Fox News does in the US. I want to turn our attention to the debate, but we may have a very very quick conversation on this one because I'm actually wondering if anyone actually watched it, including you, <laughs> including you two. Well, I did. Oh, David, you poor bugger. That means I'm going to have to talk and to you about I, the David because I know I did, Emma, Emma didn't get a chance. I felt like you made me. <clears throat> I did. And I, it's one hour, one minute and 57 seconds that I'm never getting back. Okay, <laughs> very good. I watched I watched a bit of it on catch-up and fast-forwarded through bits, but no, I wasn't that giving That does not count. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I haven't suffered as you have. Well, well then I'll, I'll put the spotlight more on David in, on this particular part of the um, of the podcast. Um, in, in having watched the one hour and one minute and, and 30 seconds of this leaders' debate or this um, people's forum out in Box, yeah. out in Box Hill um, on Sky, did you uh, – what, what, what were your takeaways from it? And let's start with Matthew Guy's performance and then we'll talk about Daniel in the second part. Um, I thought Matthew Guy's performance was uh, very controlled. Um, he tried to exert some charm over the audience. There was smiles and chuckles. I thought he was ultimately too passive and too uh, – he had taken one Mogadon too many. Um, <laughs> so there were – Moments where I think he needed to shift to the front foot and he didn't. And I, there were moments where Daniel did, um, you know, score hits on him and he did not respond. So I, I, I don't think he made a fatal mistake, but this debate was more important for Guy than it was for Andrews. And notwithstanding that, he didn't take the offensive or launch himself into it. Um, and... You know, as I foreshadowed last week, both leaders were keen to, um, you know, charm and persuade the audience of swinging voters. So they didn't sort of lash out at each other, but there were a few moments where Daniel, you know, artfully and politely pinned him to the deck uh, about, you know, $30 billion worth of promises and you say, I'm yeah. a big spender. Um, you say that the integrity system um, of, isn't working, but you just boasted a moment ago about how the integrity system was designed by you when you're in cabinet. So how do you square that circle? So there are a couple of moments where Daniel landed, I thought, very real salient blows. They weren't acts of sort of overpowering thuggishness or arrogance. They were artfully done, politely done. And Guy needed an assertive response at those moments and didn't have it. So... No fatal mistakes, but I was surprised that he wasn't a little more combative given given how important this was for him. And, of course, 
as you've heard me complain before, you know, the two of them are sitting there in the tabernacle of conservatism. I would like to thank the Herald Sun and Sky News for putting on this debate. I mean, please spare me. Yeah. Um, uh, so there they are at the centre of the evil empire. Um, Guy should have felt very at home. Um, yeah, I thought he was surprisingly passive. Yes, the um, a couple of things I want to pick up on that, uh, and then I'll come to you, Emma. Uh, I, I, I do remember distinctly being in CHQ for the 2018 debate uh, in which, uh, and I reckon Matthew Guy's team have got him to go back and watch that one because he was so angry in that debate. Like he was just little and snarky and scheming and bitter. And so they've said to him, you cannot you cannot be like this in any way, shape or form in this debate. Uh, and he didn't he, – he tried to be so positive. It was rays of sunlight from Matthew Guy to the point though he, he cl- was clearly instructed, don't engage with Daniel. Just do not engage with him. Do not get sucked into his vortex because otherwise you will get killed. Uh, so there were times there, to your point, David, that he just wouldn't engage with him. He's, no, he while actually, he was being smashed. Yeah, he yeah, he actually said to him, I'm not going to fight you. Uh, and Daniel said, we're not going to fight. It's a debate. Well, he, didn't even, he said, it's your fight, Daniel. It's your it's fight. Fine. It didn't even make sense to me. No. And I no. Just, I think I think I, I have watched that clip of that part and I think it was a deliberate <laughs> attempt to try to, to paint Daniel Andrews as the angry one fighting mm. and to, to sort of reclaim I'm, I'm a calm stable presence that can be a different kind of premier. And I think you're absolutely right, Stephen. It was, if anything, it was a complete reaction to last time when he was so angry, he was so tied up with that very negative campaign around African gangs. He was determined to do something different. And that particular clip I think showed uh, just how how lo- how much he'd lost perspective on that and was trying to paint his opponent, in this case the Premier, as an angry presence and and Andrew just didn't buy into that at all. He just he very finished calmly. up looking like Not a deer a in the headlights. Yeah, it's a debate. We're here to have a debate. We're here to have a conversation. Um, I thought he, 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 he looked nervous, he looked constrained um, and he looked like he was very much the amateur up against the professional. He looked lobotomised. Is, yeah. the, the, is the word that came to my mind. And Daniel, I thought, just looked incredibly comfortable. And to your oh, point, so relaxed, right? To, to your point, David, uh, and even Emma, yeah, he, he walked into the valley of darkness. Like this was an away game for us. And he just looked like he was just loving it. You know, you got 100 members of the Liberal Party there sitting in front of you. You got Kieran Gilbert doing follow ups to make the question from the viewer far more pointed when it was Daniel's question. And when it was one for Matt Guy, he sort of fluffed it up a little bit. And Daniel was just like Not, going. It was absolutely outrageous. I was actually thinking of playing a clip of it on this program, but you'd be pleased to know technology defeated me. But there were a couple of moments where, oh, now, Matthew, your, we want the, your question. We know you're very positive about the state. You've got a great vision for this. I mean, please, spare me. <laughs> he was under orders to do everything he could to help the little bugger, but the little bugger wouldn't be helped. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, okay, now I, I want to spend the rest of this episode um just talking a bit about uh the pathway to to government um i remember in 2000 uh, sorry 2022 start of this year we did an episode the week leading into the federal election when we got a whole bunch of folks from all the different states including david fanny uh which we sort of went through all the different battleground seats and 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 what we thought would happen and so our viewers out there our listeners out there sorry um could 
uh, could sit down on Saturday night with their guide and work out what seats they needed to keep an eye on. Um, that episode went for six or seven days. Some people are still listening to it now. Um, but amazingly, a lot of people did listen to it. In fact, it's one of our biggest listens to episodes ever, which I think is an amazing feat given it breaks the model of podcast because they say never make a <laughs> podcast that goes longer than 50 minutes. And this one literally went for two and a half hours. But anyway, um, uh, <laughs> So we're not going to do that again today, but what I do want to do with you today, oh. yeah, no, sorry, David. What, what I do want to do though is I'll, I do want to use what, we've, what remaining time we've got for this episode just to start to have a bit of a conversation around the seats that will be critical to Labor getting to 45. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are 88 seats in the lower house. You need 45 seats to win government. Um, and to give folks out there a bit of a state of play of where we're at um, at this moment, Labor has 55 seats, the Liberal National Party Coalition have 27, the Greens have three, the Independents have one. The Liberals, the Coalition needs to pick up 18 seats to form a majority. The Labor needs to lose 11 seats to dip under 45 and then have to be in a position where they might have to try and negotiate a, uh, um, a minority government with um, some crossbench MPs. So let's just sort of work our way through... Um, how this kind of plays out and taking into account we've had a number of polls come out as well in yeah. uh, in recent days yeah. as well, which is kind of getting us a little bit focused uh, and a little bit jumpy perhaps on what's going on. So first of all, I want to talk about the pathway to government for the Liberals. That's probably the easiest way to do it, just to work out how big a mountain it is actually for them uh, to climb. Um, and what I've done, I've sent you both obviously a, um, some notes about what, how I'm looking at it. Um, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on it as well. But David, if I can start with you about, let's talk about the Tories and how they could possibly get to government. I've broken these um, group of groups of seats into th- into four groups. Group one is the, the the likely gains that they'll pick up on Saturday night, just by virtue of the the margins are so small, um, and uh, um, and there's only three of those that I've put in this group, and that's Bass, Packenham, and Nepean. Uh, two of them are held. One of them's a new seat that's been created, which is Packenham, which is notionally two point two percent to Labor. But I, I really don't ever pay attention to notionality. I just think that once the election's called or the writs are issued, it's like pressing reset on Atari. You just got to start again, and every vote's up for grabs. So there's those seats, and then there's Group th- Group Two, which consists of the six seats in the eastern suburbs that Labor picked up uh, at the last election in two thousand eighteen in the in the landslide. Uh, plus I've added in there two other regional seats. One is South Barbon, which is held by Darren Cheeseman from Labor, and the other one is um, Mildura, which is held by Ali Carpet, the independent, in, uh, by 0.4%. Uh, and then the last group is – and if they were to – sorry, for the Liberals to pick up all of those seats, that takes them to around about 37 seats. So they're, mm. they're, you know, they're, they've got eight required to get government. In that group of uh, seats that they need to pick up in Group 3, there's the outer suburban seats of Narry Warren North, which is an open race because Luke Donnell and the Labor incumbents not recontesting. There's the seat of Cranbourne. Yan Yean, which is an open race because uh, Daniel Green's not recontesting. And there's the seat of Eltham. And then the final four seats are the Sandbelt seats of Bentley, Mordialic, Caram, and Frankston. David, let's talk about the pathway to government for the Liberals. What are your thoughts on the likelihood of these groupings that I've given here to, that I've provided for you today? to say which ones do you feel? And I'm asking you, I'm not forcing you to say, yeah, well, they'll, they'll grab that one or they'll grab that one. But I just want to sort of see, get a sense from you, how likely it is do you think that they can get to that 45? Yeah, not likely, um, but that's not to be complacent. I, I think that there are several different, I mean, if we think about it in terms of sort of region and demographic groups, 
Um, we've got sort of low education, low income outer suburbs as one group. Um, we've got high education, high income inner city suburbs. Um, then we've got sort of what might be described as Victorian liberal heartland, you know, the old clay belt where they've stubbornly hung on um, uh, at state and federal level. And for them to get all of these groups at once, um, uh, I think is unlikely. But we can look at, I mean, if we take sort of Narrawarren North, for example, now, on one reading you could say, well, goodness me, the Labor Party holds that by over 10%. But we do know that in years gone by that was a marginal seat and it has swung hard. Um, and there is a sort of a, a big uh, element out there I'm thinking low education, low income, non-English speaking background, not born in Australia, where you do worry about, you know, is that the kind of place where the Freedom Party and anger at lockdown will manifest itself in a big swing? Uh, the kind, of, I mean, this the Liberal and Labor parties used to fight tooth and nail for this seat. You'll remember um, in the well in the nineties and in the early thousands. So, um, but. And, and then, so I guess my point is that um, you know, the Liberal Party, I don't think in this election, can have its cake and eat it too. There are some of these contests where they haven't positioned themselves well and their ferocious negative message, um, the fact that, you know, age readers are going to be a little bit annoyed about who they've been um, sharing a bed with, that stuff's going to hurt them in some of these markets. So I think what the Liberal Party have done is prioritised um, the likely gains um, and where they think they've got the best movement at the expense of um, some of those um, the other seats. So I would be surprised to see Bentley um, or even Karen, for that matter, um, seriously in play. Uh, but you know, I, I, I hope I'm not wrong. The other thing to add to this complexity is if they were if they have a perfect day, and they get all of those seats that we've just uh, talked about then, there is still defensive seats that they have to take care of. They hold – the, the, the incumbent in the seat of Caulfield is now – it's now a national Labor seat because Elwood has been redistributed into the seat of yeah. Caulfield. Very tiny margin, of course. Indeed, but a very strong progressive vote there. Like when I used to work for Danby, that was a you know 75% – Two people yeah. booths in um, in that yep. part of town. Yeah, it's good teal terrain, I would think. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the Greens is doing quite well there as well, um, as well. Right. And, and um, without giving uh, the location away of some of our guests, um, certainly, <laughs> yeah, someone is you know would be familiar with that <laughs> with that area. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'm expecting, as I did in the federal election, to be waiting a week longer than the rest of you for a result in my local seat. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Morwell. Uh, yeah. Ru- Russell North was yeah. the incumbent. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in Morwell, right? Well, I mean, this... Fascin- it's going to be the most fascinating seat for me, I think, because Russell North has been such a strong personal brand down there. It has, it was for a long time, it was a Labor seat, then it's been a national seat independent. The SEC announcement will play quite differently down there than it does in anywhere else in the state. 
Um, and Kate Maxfield's a really strong local candidate, right? So it's going to be, I think, a really interesting seat to watch. Um, I don't know that it what happens in Morwell will give us much of an indication for what happens in the rest of the state, but I do think it's going to be a very interesting contest on the night and one that Labor could could pick up. It is, and now I'm just being hopeful rather than analytical, but it is a place where um, certain groups where Labor is in trouble and losing in other places in Melbourne, we might hang on to there because of the SEC. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's absolutely right. I can't understate the influence of the candidate of Russell North had in holding that seat throughout those years. He was the captain, president, coach of the Tarragon Footy Club. Yep. Uh, the Tarragon Footy Club is so important into that into that community. Like it's massive. It is absolutely massive. And, I mean, he was a national. He's not a national you know, and in the, in the end, he ended up leaving the party and becoming an independent. And people kept on voting for him. They voted for mm. him. They didn't vote for, like more people are not nationals. They're not walking down the middle of no, mall with freaking cows. You know, going to the freaking sale yards or something, right? I mean, they voted for him even though he was riddled with scandal. Yeah, it was amazing. absolutely. And I had said to folks in the party, I said the minute he goes, that's we've got that's our seat. We're going to take that back. Um, and here's our opportunity. And I think we actually have pre-selected quite well. I think Dr. Kate Maxfield uh, will do it. There's run a good race with absolutely no central support. Um, mm. And we're, that's a chance. We got a tech, we asked mailbag questions during the week, you know, send some questions and someone asked, I can't remember if it was, you know, what are the, what are the ones to watch that, you know, no one's talking about? And I would say Morwell is one of those. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other two, Benambra, the Libs have got a challenge on there against an independent. They hold that by 2.6%. Matthew Guy was there today. I uh, know. Uh, I was surprised. That says that speaks volumes for me. And the and the last one's Q uh, against the uh, uh, notional in teal or independent, what the hell they want to call themselves. Yeah. Um, they hold that by four point seven percent. But my understanding is that most of the people who align with this ideal of teal independent independence have all that's ground zero for them, and that's where they've all gone because it's the only candidate. Absolutely, that, you know, it's it's almost the same personnel from Monique Ryan's campaign in Kuyong, right? Um, yep. And it is probably. I think the seat most likely to swing strongly to a teal independent. So when you look at all those seats that the, the Libs need to win to get to 45, they've still got some defence to kind mm. of deal with, which can complicate things. And also a lot of these seats in that group two, uh, which is the eastern suburbs and some of those outer suburban seats I mentioned, plus the, you know, the group threes, they're not going to – I just can't see them getting all of them. Um, no, it's a huge, huge ask for them to pick up 18 net seats, yeah. right? Um yeah. I can't see it happening unless there's something going on in the electorate that we and everyone else that's commented on it or analysed it or polled it uh, is completely unaware of. I can't see them easily forming a majority government so, on the back of those numbers. Mildura, South Barwon, they have got to be long shots for the Liberal Party. Absolutely. Sticking uh, with you, Emma, let's now talk about the the prospect of a um, a path to a minority government for Labor. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got uh, – I've sort of bundled these into three – yeah, three – one, two – yeah, three groups. Seats yep. that we're in a battle with uh, with the Greens, uh, Richmond, Northcote and Albert Park, the smallest margin being Northcote 1.7, the biggest margin being Albert Park 13.1 and that actually is a Labor versus Liberal. The um, Liberal candidate came second in that race, therefore the Greens were third. Um, yep. But obviously the Greens are thinking they're in the hunt in Albert Park. Second group is, and they've got liberal preferences. They have, they do, and we'll come to that in a moment. Um, the second group is uh, where we may lose seats to independents, Melton Point Cook, 
Um, and also Hawthorne's a bit of a sort of a scramble because there's so many, there's so many different sort of people running. And then obviously, uh, if we, so for example, if we were to lose, uh, in a worst, worst, worst case scenario, we lose Richmond, Northcote, Albert Park, Melton, Point Cook, that takes us, that still only takes us down to 50 seats. Uh, mm. And that's okay. That's, I'd take that. That's government. No offense to the folks. <laughs> lot, no offense to the people who's lost their jobs. But we're talking about hypotheticals here. I'm not suggesting that that's what we want. Um, but then what complicates it is obviously then if the liberals then make gains in you know like Bass, Packham, Nepean, maybe, and they, then they can pick up just two more seats in that kind of eastern suburban block, uh, then that puts us into uh, under 45. Yeah, Emma, what are your thoughts about this idea of? Um, minority government because the media are getting – they've locked their teeth into this one. very excited about it, Aren't Steve. They? Um, because it, it represents something other than <clears throat> something other than the norm for them and, you know, something to get, you know, to, to rally their, their middle-class sensibilities around. Um, I think a minority government is possible, but, you know, if you look at these seats and you look at these numbers, it's still unlikely. Um, I think I think Labor can expect to lose Hawthorne, right? Um, it was a bit of a fluke pickup last time. Whether it goes back to John Pesuto or to an independent is anyone's guess. Um, but I think Hawthorne we can probably write off. I think the interesting contests are the ones where we're up against the Greens because it's not necessarily the most obvious that you think would fall. Uh, you know, the, the the margin in Northcote's very slim, but Kat Theophanis is quite a popular and first-term uh, member who's been very active in that community, whereas Richmond, the margin's a lot healthier, but Richard Wynn's retiring. Uh, and so I think Richmond's the real risk for Labor here, although I am not at all a fan of the Greens candidate. You'll be shocked to hear. Um, she's, uh, I think, <clears throat> pretty lightweight, and I think it'll be interesting to see whether she's actually cut through with those voters. They're a pretty savvy group in Richmond, right? There's been some noise this week about her putting up signs unauthorised in people's houses and a lot of uh, people being quite annoyed with that. And um, they did a good hatchet job on our Labor candidate. Oh, they did a great hatchet job, as they do so well. It's really all they do. Um, but For yeah, I, identity I, politicians to attack her identity was very curious. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not as worried. I mean, I was in Albert Park until recently. I'm not as worried about Albert Park as some people are. Yes, it's it's a risk uh, losing Martin Foley there, but Nina's a good candidate. Um, and I think that if you look, if you overlay the um, federal election results in, Port, in uh, McNamara that came down to the wire, a lot of the areas that were badly performing for us are, are not necessarily covered in Albert Park. It's actually, you know, areas in Peran and um uh, out that way that are, are more green leaning uh so i think hawthorne goes to the most likely to the independents possibly back to john pizzuto uh, i think um richmond's a risk i hope cat holds on in Northcote. it's going to be down to the wire i think when it comes to those other seats to drop to independents point cook's only in play really because jill's retiring right um but matt hillicari's out there, he's a he's a very experienced operative, very good campaigner, um, and I think has been on the ground out there for a long time. Uh, so I would be quite surprised if we lose. I mean, I think he'll he'll take a big haircut, but I don't necessarily think the independent that. there is prominent. This is true. Yes, yes, uh, but that be, makes it a three way contest, and I'm not sure that we don't. I don't. I'm not as across the preferences in Point Cook as you might be, though, David. Well, as I understand it, the independent there was previously the independent against Tim Pallas and Werribee. Mm. 
Um, and so I think that's and that sort of populist, okay, Freedom Party type independent is the kind of tip of the spear for us in the western suburbs. It's actually it's actually a doctor called Joe Gara, um, who is reasonably popular, and he moved. He ran against Tim, and you're right, David. He ran against Tim and Werribee, but then when the redistribution happened, a lot of his voting base moved into this new seat of Point Cook, hence why he's contesting there, which is quite smart. Um, but you know, but it's still a huge margin, right? It's, it's a, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is a huge margin. And to your point, uh, Emma, you know, Matt Hilakari and I were on admin committee for a number, a number of years, and we didn't see eye to eye on many, many things. But I can tell you one thing: he's a very good campaigner, um, yeah. and he will get. He's down there, and he's working his ass off, uh, and yep. and uh, all the volunteers down there. So. Uh, they're not going. A lot of people, I imagine, are invested in his success, so he should have the resources he needs. Yep. <laughs> yes. I would think so. <laughs> Absolutely. I would think so. Uh, Emma Melton. Yeah, this is too hard for me to call. Um, I think it's one of those seats that we we are going to see some of the um, the lockdown stuff play out, some of that residual anger, some of that um, understanding how people experience things differently in Melton. Um, and I think it's a risk for us. I don't necessarily think it's gone, but, you know, it, it's going to be hard to hold. So I, I would suggest, you know, of those kind of three that you've put down that we might drop to the independents, I would say it's Hawthorne first, then possibly Melton, Point Cook uh, below that. But, you know, I could be completely wrong. I'm not a sophologist, as we've discussed in the past. But I do think that, that um, the demographics in Melton make it a really hard contest to predict because it's a mix of old Labor voters and then new communities that probably did suffer uh, more during lockdown and things than than some of us realise. we actually got to... There's another funny thing about Melton too, just to throw this in as an aside, and that is the churn. There's vast numbers of people moving in and out of that electorate all the yep. time, uh, which I think has impacts for, you know, the continuity of issues and the public imagination there. Also, um, Steve McGee, who's the sitting member for uh, for Melton, there's, there'll be a, he'll get a sophomore swing. To your point, David, yes, there is going to be churn, but still there is, you know, that's worth at least 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, you know, if it's going to come down to the wire, he's going to need every vote and 2% will be handy. He's, he holds a seat by five right now. Um, so that would have to be a pretty big swing against him in order for him to lose that seat. Um, we actually got two questions in relation to this minority situation we're in from folks on Twitter. Um, the first one is from Verjuice Goddess. Love that name. Uh, she said, I worked on Jackie Trad's South Brisbane state campaign in 2020 when the LNP preferenced the Greens over Labor. It was commiserations. It was a, it was a ruthless tactic, which I didn't think would work, but something like 60 or 70% of LNP voters followed the how to vote, she said, which surprised me. And she asked, you know, might community independence cause a problem for us um, across the board with this? Who wants to take that? God. I, I, extrapolating from the defeat of Jackie Trad out to anything in Victoria is pretty tough. Um, but it's a good point. I, I mean, I think what look, I'm going to sound really nasty here, but yes, is, is it a surprise that LNP voters follow the how to vote card more than any other voters? Or well, most surveys show us that, uh, that they do, um, and that they tend to be more disengaged than other cohorts of voters. Uh, so yes, how to votes matter more for those. Um, those voters in those seats. 
The thing about Jackie's loss, of course, was that she was targeted, as all uh, progressive Labor women are, by the Greens. Um, and so I don't think it had as much to do with the kind of swings to independence as it does um, to that, you know, that deliberate narrow targeting in of, well, this is a this is a progressive seat we can take um, uh, from the Greens. So I don't know that you can extrapolate that out necessarily to seats that aren't under threat from the Greens as easily as you can elsewhere. Then let's talk about uh, how we get Labor to 45 again. Um, and I've made a list uh, here and I've broken them up into uh, one, two, three, four, four groups. Uh, wasn't that great? Stephen can count. Um, okay, so the first group is basically um, 15% margins for Labor or higher, of which that takes us to 21 seats. Yeah. Then there is the 10% to 20% grouping, which takes us to 38 seats. In that group of seats, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight seats that I've highlighted there that uh, either target seats or margin, target seats that are getting resources, or I, I assume they're getting resources, or seats that we're obviously mindful of. And included in that is Morty Alec, Albert Park, Point Cook, Karen Bentley, Ballerine, Narrowire North, and Frankston. Uh, and then less of ten. The last, second last group is less than ten percent, uh, but more than five, and that's Eureka, Werribee, Cranbourne, Eltham, and Mombok. And then less than five percent. Oh, and that takes us to forty-one seats in the lower house. And then less than five percent. There's a whole heap of them, um, but the forty-fifth seat I've got here is South Barwon. Mm. Melton being the forty-fourth, um, and then beyond forty-five, there's seats like Box Hill. Just to give viewers at home understand what I'm talking about here. There's seats like Box Hill, Ringwood, Ashwood. It's all the north, all those outer suburban seats in the eastern suburbs, essentially. Plus Caulfield and Morwell if we pick them up. Doing that because when I did this orig- originally yesterday, I was actually feeling reasonably depressed and thinking, "Shit, you know, on a really good day, the libs might actually be able to jag." 45 even on a mixed day we could have minority government but then actually when i try to make it up to 45 for us i kind of went oh we can get there there's a bit of fat in there in which all we need to do is a couple of things break for us in the right way and you know we can get to 45 um i'll go to you david first and then i'll come back to you emma as well looking at that yourself is there anything out there that jumps out at you that says oh um you know good day bad day how are you feeling about this well, I agree with your fundamental point, which is that we're in the box seat. I mean, when you start a contest like this with 55 seats, we're in the box seat. And we've got a nice foundation stone, haven't we, of, you know, 20-plus seats that are reliably Labor, um, which no other force in this state election can boast. Mm. Um, I think... Uh, once you get past that, of course, you're then where we've always been, which is looking at a whole lot of individual contests. I think um, I was interested to read today the Herald Sun's musings on this very subject. Um, hold on to your seats. I don't know if you saw that story by Shannon Deary. I did. Um, uh, which, of course, was uh, looking at Redbridge's work. Um, and they're starting to get very excited about the prospects of Labor taking a beating which, um, as an aside, I would say I thought it was a very interesting strategy of um, the Herald Sun to publish this story today because hopefully it will scare Labor voters into thinking that um, there's no room for complacency anywhere on this in this contest. And you might remember when we started talking about this weeks ago, 
at that point, we were talking about it being a one-horse race and you know, complacency about a likelihood of a Labor victory working against Labor. And I do feel like that's now evaporated. Mm. Um, and both the media and all of us are now seeing this as a much closer contest. That's good. I mean, that didn't happen to Jeff Kennett um, two days out in 1999. Um, he remained the you know clear line front runner until he wasn't. Um, so, as an aside, I would say those atmospherics are good for Labor, and we fight harder when we when we're scared and we are scared. Mm. Um, I think. Uh, we are go- I, the, the, even if we are have a t- terrible night and we find ourselves, you know, around forty three. Mm. Um, we are going to be the largest party in the parliament by a fair margin, and I think there will be enough independence in the parliament that we can run an effective centre left government without having to push a smash glass and push the green button. Um, so I guess that's a very roundabout way of me saying we can and should win. Um, if we are forced into minority status, we should still be optimistic about being able to form a government without the Greens and uh, and thereby be able to govern effectively. Yep. Emma, your thoughts on that list that we've made there? Yeah, look, I'd agree with that. And the thing that struck me about this, Stephen, is if you're looking at the... We're, we're, you know, Labor's all ruined um, polling that's coming from either Redbridge or Resolve or whatever else. A lot of the disaffection with Labor that they're picking up in those outer suburban seats are in those seats where we've got a thumping majority. So a lot of the stuff that Cos, Samaris and others are warning us about, about people with, you know, baseball bats out in Broadmeadows and, and Thomastown and Laverton and Dandenong, uh, we can, you know, we can we can shed a bit of skin out there without without necessarily losing seats. Uh, and I think that, you know, we'll probably see that. We'll see some reduced margins in those outer seats. But if you look at what you've listed as, you know, those seats that are less than 5%, they're either comfortable inner city seats or their seats um, like uh, even in the 10% bank where, uh, people probably fared pretty well under lockdown, where they were able to work from home, uh, isolate pretty comfortably, felt fairly protected. So I think this is the thing about this election: the the anger that we're seeing, the um, the anti Dan sentiment that the media keeps telling us about, that the Herald Sun the Herald Sun keeps running on, is concentrated in particular socioeconomic pockets that aren't necessarily going to translate into us losing seats. That we'll lose votes but not necessarily lose seats. And so in that way, it's quite an unpredictable outcome in some regards. But I think, like David's absolutely right, in terms of seats held and the numbers in the parliament, I'm still pretty confident of a, of a majority Labor government. Uh, but at the very least, I think we're looking at a solid minority Labor government with a reasonable support uh, in the in the lower house, uh, without, as David said, having to push the green button, it's the upper house where things are going to get contentious. I think, and where things are going to be difficult, much more difficult for the next government. Um, but you know, if you're looking at those seats, like uh, you know, um, even even in that mid band, Morty Alex, you know, it's on a thirteen percent margin. Point Cooks on twelve point eight. Ballerines on 11.4. These are not seats that necessarily suffered terribly during lockdown. And so I wouldn't expect to see those seats be in play 
as much as perhaps the overall polling is indicating. One thing that I um, have um, when I've been trying to work out all these different sort of avenues in which and permutations in which um, we can the, the Liberals can either form uh, government or, or not or Labor or whatnot. It all keeps on coming back for me anyway. It keeps on coming back to the sandbelt seats: mm. Bentley, Mordialic, Caram, and Frankston. We lost government in 2010, and we lost all four seats on the sandbelt. In 2014, we won back government and we won all four seats on the sandbelt. And obviously mm. in 2018, uh, that was still ground zero for us. We had fuel campaigns in all four of those seats and that was where we, we – that was that was our line of defence. Uh, and we, we made huge gains to your point, Emma, just said then. Though all those seats now got double-digit margins. Mm. <clears throat> on election night, when the results first start coming in, the first seats that I'll be looking at will be those four seats because if those yep. four seats are okay, then I know the Liberal Party are not going to form government and that's the first part taken care of. After that, If we imagine a moment where the Liberals win Hawthorne, Ashwood, Box Hill, Ringwood and Bayswater. Which is all possible. Those are five seats in the clay belt in Liberal Party heartland, which on one reading we should never have won. Hmm. I mean, that... We are crawling deep into enemy territory with those. So, so in some ways, that that is a correction as much as it is, you know, a, a strategic defeat for us. Absolutely. Is losing those kinds of seats, perhaps God forbid, losing all five of those seats in the clay belt, is really just the Liberal Party and the electorate recalibrating so that it once again occupies its safe seats. Yep, I agree with that. I mean, I, I nearly fell over backwards when we run one Ringwood in twenty eighteen. Um, so, you know, losing that seat again now wouldn't be a terrible shock. Yeah, um, I mean, federally we're talking about Casey, Menzies, right. Hugon, um, Higgins. Yeah. Uh, these, are, these are good seats for the Liberal Party, at least right. they're meant to be. That's right. <laughs> but I, I agree with you, Stephen. It's those sandbell seats that where there's a high proportion of, of working-class voters, to use the old terminology, um, who've traditionally... Um, you know, they've been swinging voters. They swung to Labor hard over the last couple of elections. Now, I think the thing, and I'm going to do my 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 thing now where I go, let's talk about policy for a moment. Um, <laughs> despite all the politics and all the swings and roundabouts and all the calculations, the policies that appeal to people in those sandbelt seats and in those outer suburban seats are still, there's still better policies coming from Labor than they are from Libs. I think that's where... Uh, the attacks on the suburban rail loop, which are becoming increasingly elitist, you know, oh, it's just a thing that's going to run through the suburbs in Labor seats. It doesn't help anybody that really has any money. Um, I don't think that, that really cuts through in those seats. I think the SEC announcement, I think the uh, the investment in specialist schools, in, in health and, and clinics, those policies play well in those seats. And actually, People in those seats are often dismissed. People in those kind of sandbelt seats and those outer suburban working class seats are often dismissed by the commentariat and by the media as being, you know, caught up in the culture wars, caught up in the anti-Dan or the pro-Dan, I stand with Dan or Dan sucks uh, margin, you know, either, either side of that debate. But actually they're a lot more alive to economic and so and and infrastructure policies that change their lives than a lot of inner city voters realise. Uh, you drive down the sand belt and there are more level crossings removed down that strip down the Pean Highway and the and a big change um, in terms of the the commute, the impact on people's lifestyles, 
the provision of more health services, more local health services and investments in schools down there. It remains to be seen how that stuff plays out. It's something the media doesn't pay much attention to anymore, but I think voters do. And to that point, um, the uh, I do wonder about uh, the seats that David just mentioned, that clay belt, those those seats in the eastern suburbs, all the way out to the um, all the way out to the Dandenongs. I think there's a chance that we do actually hang on to one or two of them. I think Box Hill's one I'm, I'm interested in. Mm. Uh, and the other one actually is Bayswater, which is the most marginal out of all of them. But Jackson Taylor has just been an absolute dynamite of a candidate yeah. out there. He's literally door knocked that election yeah. about 20 times himself. And he's a massive fund. He's funded his own camp- his whole campaign. It's not even a target yeah. seat. Uh, yeah. And I just would be. Fantastic candidate, right? So yeah. much energy. Oh, any single one of those five seats, if, we, if any of them are left standing on election night, it's a nail in the Liberal Party's coffin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are seats they really need to win. And yep. all those seats swung against the Libs at the Fed. Yep. I think there's, there's right. something going on out there. Yeah, yeah well, well, there's, there was a Morrison the factor there too, you know, and I'm not sure that Matthew Guy is quite as on the nose as Morrison is, but I agree with David. If we hold Box Hill and or Bayswater, it's game over, I reckon. I can see David with a pen in his hand furiously looking at a document here right now. I was wondering what's going on in his head before we move to uh, – I want to talk about media and then wrap, and then wrap the show up. Dave, you got any other thoughts? Oh, I'm just looking at the map and thinking of all the things that can go right and all the things that can go <laughs> wrong and, um, you know, it's pointless, isn't it? It is. Oh, one thing I will say to, the, to our listeners, um, I will probably get uh, Rebecca, our producer, who's got far greater um, uh, graphic design skills than I, to take this list and make it um, sexy and we might stick it up on our, our various social media uh, channels and it can be your um, your, uh, your your TAB guide for Saturday night. Uh, no your, pressure, Beck. Yeah, it, yeah I know. Uh, w- uh, ticking off the list Just of a question seats. before we leave that topic. Um, do you think Footscray, do either of you think Footscray is in the frame as a possible green picker? Emma? Yeah, look, it, it's a that's a really interesting question. It could be, right? Everyone's focused on Albert Park and, and Richmond and Northcote, but Footscray, the demographics out there have changed a lot in the last oh. few years. Oh, amazingly. So it's the yuppification there is happening, yeah. happening before your eyes. You can yeah. have a latte and a sandwich and watch a streetscape change in front of you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's people like us 20 years ago, David. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> so, no, I think it's a really good point, actually. Footscray's a seat to watch. It could be a sneaky win for the Greens. Who's their candidate? Is it some weird bloke that, like, they do tend to put in the unwinnable seat? Sorry to be so. Pissed. That's who they ran last time. I dare say that um, after the, his own. Um, He's running in Nary Warren this time, I think, that dude. For, yeah. for the Greens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? The guy that was I a rapper so. that's wrapped yeah. all that sort of offensive stuff about women and that's that's what I hear. Yeah. Oh. I, I could look, I could be wrong. Disclaimer, disclaimer. Right, okay. Twenty seven point six percent Katie Hall holds the seat of Footscray at this yeah. current moment. And she's an excellent let's 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 just get a plug in for Katie here. She's fantastic. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Love Katie dearly and she should by all merits hold it off. But yeah, I think the Greens will take some paint off her for sure. Okay, uh, let's um, – have we covered off all the uh, – no, let's talk about mail. So let's talk about media. And we've got a couple of questions here anyway from folks um, uh, in our mailbag segment. Ms. And I'll just – I'll ask these two questions now and then get you guys just to sort of do a summary of um, how you saw the media this week and then give us your Tory with the Typewriter Award for the week. Uh, the two questions, uh, one from Ms. Mc, 
uh, Ms. Melbourne, how much influence do you think the media has had on voters in this election? We've probably talked about that a bit over the course of the last couple of episodes. And Shane Egan writes, is it time the ALP call out blatant media bias? Well, Shane, we're certainly trying to do it every week, that's for sure. Um, Emma, your reflections on the media in the final week of the campaign and then uh, give us your tour of the Typewriter Award. I think the media has less and less influence on voters in Victoria with every passing election, um, particularly as they stick to their kind of tired tropes of who's corrupt and don't we care about whether or not they're talking to us on the radio in the morning. If they're not talking to us on the radio, then they're a bad candidate. Um, and I think increasingly in Victoria we've got a, you know, we've got a younger population than other parts of the country. We've got a more educated population. So they have less influence than in other parts of the country. Um, but that's not to say that they aren't still doing their damnedest to sway this election to their preferences. Uh, I think that um, in terms of, you know, how how voters will react, a lot of people have, like, the, the media has been lamenting the fact that voters seem so disengaged. You know, that why aren't they as agitated as we are about this election? It's, it's, it's a third-term government. Surely it's time for a change. Um, and I think there's a sense in the electorate of people. People, we, Victoria's been through so much, right? It's been such a politicised environment for the last three years, particularly through lockdowns. The, the vast majority of people made up their mind some time ago. Um, and I think that was what was interesting in the debate was there was such a high number of undecideds. I don't, I don't buy that. I think in the electorate it's a much lower number and that's why this campaign kind of seems to have gone a bit below the radar in many ways. Um Tory with a typewriter, it's just too easy every week to pick a Herald Sun journalist, right? There was a fantastic piece in The Age this week by Dennis Muller. Um, yes, it was. Uh, you know, just how egregious the Herald Sun's bias has been um, mm -hmm. and that they cannot be taken seriously anymore. So, you know, part of me just wants to nominate the whole paper, but I think that's getting lazy. So I'm going to call out, I'm going to give my award with some caveats to Chip Legrand this week, um, who wrote a beautifully nuanced piece in The Age the other day about, you know, how the behaviour of all parties was terrible. But when you actually read between the lines was completely anti-Labor in, uh, in its rhetoric, talking about um, you know, the, the corruption in the state but uh, uh, and everyone being under a cloud but very much, um, oh, from a perspective of uh, Labor's fought off all these complaints about their corruption and, of course, at the same time that's been difficult for Matthew Guy because he's been under a cloud. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't egregious. It was a finely, finely crafted piece of journalism but uh, I would like to give him my nomination for the award for being subtly much more subtly biased than the, uh, you know, more egregious calling out of, of just just blatant corruption in the in the Murdoch press, which I will leave to David. Congratulations, <laughs> congratulations Chip. Um, one thing before I throw to you, David, I noticed uh, Annika Smithhurst on Insiders the other morning, which is another show that's just shit. They gave me a full 45 seconds to talk about the Victorian yeah, election. Yeah, I, I know, and she said, I just think that, you know, there hasn't been a lot of, you know, it's going to be very difficult for voters to really make an informed decision in this election because there's just not been a lot of debate about pol policy from either of the two parties. <laughs> I mean, they've literally started the whole week off just, you know, buddy Stepgate and, you know, kid ramming into frigging Kath Andrews' frigging car gate and... 
fucking, you know, eye back gate and all this other shit. And like, you, you literally set the agenda from day one where you were not going to talk about the policy. So come on, Anakin, like literally get with the program. David, your thoughts on uh, all these, uh, the, the media for this week. Yeah, well, the media are never strong on um, uh, self-analysis. The fact that they call the program insiders says it all. Um, my sense about whether the media is powerful, I guess I fundamentally agree with Emma, but with this caveat, I think they're becoming less powerful. But I worry that as people curate their own media bubbles, you know, mm. we feel it's, uh, 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 there are, uh, there's a lot of people, obviously, political elites and inner city elites who are sort of staying in touch through, um, you know, the, the Age or the Guardian or whatever. But for those who fundamentally are disengaged from politics and interested in other things, they might get some of their politics from Cable and from uh, the Herald Sun. So I, mm. I do worry as I've read. Headlines from, still matter, yeah. It, that still helps set the tone. And there is a feeling, I, I, I feel like the state's punch drunk and we've all come into this election, you know, a little bit punch drunk just with politics and public life and argument. And then at some edges of the community, that punch drunk sentiment's got a big dose of anger and resentment in it and that's kind of made the election particularly exhausting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, our journalists really across the board have done nothing to lift the tone or the calibre. Um, and they like to rail about the fact that our politics seems to have become nastier and more divisive without any reflection on how they made it so. On oh, their role in that. Mm. Um, the Tory with a typewriter, it's not been an easy one for me because there has been a lot of candidates, but I ended up going with John Ferguson oh, brother. At, at the Australian um, because he has engaged on a few occasions, and again this week, in you know pop psych, you know pop psychology of Dan Andrews. I guess you know this is a guy who's um, you know really trying to build a, a, uh, a psychological profile of the premier for the benefit of uh, both readers of the Australian newspaper. So uh, just errant nonsense, and it deserved an award. He'll love that too. He'll abs- oh, John will be so stoked. He'll thrive got- on that. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay. Um, oh, one question I keep on forgetting to ask actually, but we did during the federal uh, uh, recaps. Um, who do we think won the week? Um, Emma, who do you think won the week this week? Look, I think Labor won the week just because Dan was so dominant in that debate um, and because he has managed to pretty much shrug off everything that's been thrown at him by the the very biased press. Um, and I don't think Matthew Guy has had the final week of a campaign that a challenger needs to have if he's going to go into the actual contest with some momentum. I think he looked weak in the debate and I think he's he's not come out with anything that's kind of, you know, destroyed the I mean, the fact is this election campaign is about Dan Andrews right it's his to win and it's his to lose so uh I just think he's he's won the campaign from that from that perspective David yeah I, I just feel like it's it's it, it feels like the song you know it feels like trench warfare we're all covered in mud um it's it's a it's a mm. It's a by-election, it's a giant by-election about Dan Andrews. Yeah, the Liberal Party slogan is don't let him get away with it. They don't even have Matthew Guy on their how to vote card. It's a, mm. they've got, whereas Daniel features in their how to vote. Um, and, you know, we're trying to 
march along with doing what matters and a positive agenda. Um, but, I mean, as we've discussed when we were going through the seats, I don't think Matthew Guy's trying to win this election. He's just trying to not lose it um, and to put himself as in, in as interesting a place as he can um, on election night by not being um, you know, particularly visible or um, uh, powerful uh, in the interim. So I think, uh, so I feel like there isn't a winner uh, mm. and that uh, it's it's attritional warfare and uh, both sides have been diminished by the contest. Uh, yeah. Can I, can I throw in one last thing out of left field? Um, which is that this is, you know, uh, what comes down to probably the last seat in the upper house in the northern metropolitan region. I know the uh, socialists have some delusions that they're going to be in the contest for that, but it's almost certainly, despite what I said in week one of this podcast, going to come down to the DLP with Adam Sonurek and the Reason Party with Fiona Patton for the last spot on that ticket. Can I appeal to every Labor listener to this podcast to put, Fiona Patton ahead of Adam Samirek, please. Thank you very much. Fiona has been. I, I, I have. I have given her my preferences. I've already done what you asked. Yeah, good man. Uh, and uh, she's just been a very constructive legislator, hasn't she? She is. I mean, you know, she's the she's the classic uh, responsible crossbencher. She's not in it for herself. She's not in it to try to take over any other party. She's in it to make politics better and to make policy better. And I might not agree with her on every single thing, but I think she's been a really constructive crossbencher. I mean, she's done things. Comes to, exactly. And if it comes down to a choice between her and Rec, which I reckon it will, for God's sake, the voters in the North put put Fiona above Adam. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised. I'm not sure Adam's been trying <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if his candidacy is more to do with um, the uh, exit payments of a defeated MP rather than a candidate aspiring. Oh, of course it is. Rather than a candidate aspiring to get re-elected, but that's just speculation on my part. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's wrap this uh, this wonderful episode uh, up, and I'll do that by saying just to remind everyone that this Saturday night, um, if you want to get more of me and Van Batham and Ben Davison from The Week on Wednesday. We are going live with our election night telecast. Uh, so if you watched us in May, we did a uh, we did an election night coverage telecast from uh, I think it was from 7pm to 11pm and we're doing it again uh, on the 26th of November to cover the Victorian state election. So we'll once again bring you a whole list of uh, interviews with uh, insiders and campaigners from across Victoria as well as um, up-to-date minute-by-minute booth results from our folks on the ground in all those battleground marginal seats. I'm um, joining you at some point, I think. Yes, I think you are, Emma. I was, <laughs> was going to name-check you and I thought, I don't know if we've confirmed that. But you've just, you, you just have now on a podcast, so you're definitely coming. Um, <laughs> so tune in from 7 o'clock on Saturday night. Uh, it'll be live on Dunstreet's YouTube channel as well as Facebook and it'll be on Van's Twitter account as well. Uh, so check that out. That would be fantastic. Uh, and there is still time for you to volunteer uh, because this race is still not finished. And every conversation that you have with a voter on the doors or on the phone will make a difference. So um, we're punching this episode out first thing Friday morning. So if you're listening to it Friday afternoon, you can sign up to knock on doors this afternoon. Go to thislabor.org. 
uh, and go into the get involved section and you can find um, all the seats around the state where there are door knocks going on so you can sign up that way. The second thing you can do is there are get out the vote calls on Saturday morning. To sign up for that, go to danandrews.com.au forward slash vol as in volunteer. And if you want to hand out on Saturday and you haven't found a booth just yet and you want to register and someone will uh, give you a call and assign you to a booth, go to danandrews.com.au forward slash vol as well. Rebecca will put all of these links into the bio of this Come to the West Coast Primary School. Or, or go to the West Garth Primary School and hand out with Where that. there's an excellent booth captain waiting to greet you. There you go. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, what, nice plug there, David. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so we'll put those links up on, it, on on the bio for this week's episode plus on all of our social media um, uh, platforms. Uh, David Feeney, Emma Dawson, thank you once again for coming on the show to recap this week and recap the election. We'll talk to both of you guys next week to actually recap the election itself. Hopefully we have good things to talk about next week. Yes. Fingers crossed. I know. And until then, good luck to both of you on the weekend and uh, hopefully we'll have a glass of champagne at some point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank Cheers. you very much and good luck to both of you. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.